today's event. All right, recording in progress. So I'm Thomas Bob Matheson. Besides advising on this topic, I chair Cornet Sustainability Committee, uh, and we are thrilled to have you with us today. And today's topic has been organized in response to quite a few different questions from our community uh, about where New York real estate stands following the pandemic uh, and the introduction of the world's most ambitious carbon legislation for building local law 97 and the general rise of ESG. And it has also been organized specifically today uh, because it's New York Climate Week. And so this is the week of the year when global leaders mix with locals here in New York to discuss how we can avoid the impending climate crisis and actually turn that into an opportunity for positive change. So, you know, we are experiencing the precursors of that with different extreme weather patterns, the pandemic and so forth. If we don't do anything, the climate fever will continue to strengthen. Uh, but what all the leaders are saying is that if we act now, it's going to cost a lot less than acting later. And so that's what they're largely discussing this week. And so now we want to take that back to our jobs uh, within corporate real estate and to help really lead that discussion. We've got Linda Foggy with us. And, and Linda, she does a lot, but she heads up the uh, East Coast business. Uh, of Turner and Townsend, uh, as well as their corporate occupier business for the Americas. So she has a great view on this from those angles, uh, as well as heading large projects and programs. Then on the panel side, uh, we've got Molly D. Ramazami, who heads deep carbon reduction at JBNB, which is a very strong engineering firm in town. And so she can really speak to this from the technology angle. We've got Ari Frankel with us. He's a managing director and head of ESG over at Solberry Trout, which is a communications and investor relations firm. Now, besides speaking from that angle of, for example, how investors are looking at this and how we can act in that regard, he also headed up sustainability for many years for Alexandria real estate before. So he can also speak to the REIT and landlord angle. We've got Bruce McCaffrey with us. He heads up the group real estate across the whole of the Americas for WPP, which is really one of the world's largest communication company groups. It's really a group of many different companies such as advertising giants. And he knows a lot about being a large occupier here in New York and how that even trickles into the lease and projects and so forth. And not least, we have Peter Turkin with us. He's a vice chairman at CBRE. He is an extremely experienced broker. He heads up a large part of their landlord representation activities. But in doing so, he also needs to very thoroughly understand what all of this means for the occupiers that are going to enter and stay in those buildings. So we're so happy to have you with us and we'll now leave it to you, Linda. 
Sure. Good afternoon for all. Um, this is a really uh, timely topic, so I'm excited to be here, but especially with this particular group of experts. And um, I haven't sent them the questions in advance, so I'm just going to hit them cold with it and see how it goes. <laughs> and, uh, but I know a little bit about their background, so uh, I think it should be fine. So with that, um, I think let's just jump right in because, Thomas, you did a great job teeing up the topic for us. I'm going to start with you, Ari, if that's okay. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion that we're hearing, particularly from the financial services sector and a lot of the equity houses around that scope three emissions, especially um, in category 15, which uh, really relates to, it talks about carbon emissions in a company's investments or in their financing arm as well. Big topic. So I know Solberry Trout was recognized by Barron's as one of the top three most sustainable REITs. And um, so I'd be interested to hear your view on how are investors viewing this? How are they affecting this change that's happening in the industry? Thanks, Linda, and hi, everyone. Um, so I think there's two parts to your question. So um, you're, you're right that in, in, in my role um, with Alexandria, um, we, we emphasized a lot of elements of, of the environmental uh, component that are relevant to New York City's climate legislation and everything happening around energy consumption and the decarbonization of buildings. Um, so, but let me start on kind of the, the investor side and the question on scope three. Um, you know, a lot of the impacts um, that are felt throughout the sort of life cycle of building construction and occupation um, actually have to do with construction, uh, tenant improvements, and then the, from a landlord perspective, the consumption of tenant uh, water, energy, et cetera. And so um, for a long time, I think the, the commercial real estate landlord community, rightfully so, has you know, done what they can um, to address what, uh, what you know, ESG uh, nerds like me call scope one and two. Um, and scope three was you know, the tenant's uh, domain um, they have control over it. There might have been, you know, limited things that a landlord felt like they could do. Um, so whether you are the SEC starting to signal that scope three reporting requirements could become, uh, you know, mandatory sooner than later, uh, whether you are investors who are looking at this and saying, uh, you know, we don't, we don't care where you draw the boundary in a building. It's a building and we want, you know, full scope reporting. I think those two things are, are driving uh, you know, more whole building uh, performance discussions than ever before. And uh, Local Law 97 um, is definitely a springboard to force uh, more collaborative discussion between landlord and tenant on the consumption happening within uh, the four walls than ever before. Um, so ultimately, uh, things like uh, tenant improvement kits, um, you know, access to data even at the kind of basic level, um, but really just, you know, really uh, thinking about all the kinds of agreements that are going to have to be hashed out. Um, lawyers, I think, are very happy um, to have to, you know, be involved and, and help work on all these things. Um, but it, it, it absolutely will force uh, the discussion um, that, you know, quite frankly, the sustainability people like myself for a long time were maybe uh, wishing they were brought into the, the conversation when it was time to execute a lease or be part of the TI uh, kit uh, discussion, negotiation, whatever it is. Um, so that, you know, the, the, the companies that are really thinking about that proactively are going to have a, a leg up on the competition. 
Uh, and the last thing I'll say is that, you know, for everybody who is um, in the process of, of hammering out um, a TI kit or, or, or a lease, um, you know, my advice to you would be ask the landlord to talk to the sustainability person, get them involved um, in the nitty gritty, because um, most of uh, your landlords will have such a person and they're usually not present when the rubber is heating the road, uh, meeting the road. So I think that's maybe a call to action for, for those that are, that are on the line here. I think that's great. It segues perfectly into the next set of questions. You also talked a little bit about reporting and measuring, and um, that's a really timely topic too. So I'm gonna come back to you on that. I also now wanna turn to Peter. Um, so Peter, you've been a, a broker on the representing the owners and the landlords for years in the New York market, very successful at that. And so I want to ask you, leveraging all that knowledge that you've gained, but yet thinking about this from the tenant's view, um, help us understand what does local law 97 mean to me as a tenant? I mean, what kinds of investments are the landlords having to make? And, you know, if I'm a tenant, what kinds of costs could I expect are going to be, you know, passed back through to me or that I can expect to share um, and bear? Uh, as we go through this. And so, and, and if you can also, Peter, touch on, um, you know, any kind of requirements that you're seeing for the tenants build out, you know, any kind of requirements that are being written into the leases, what do tenants need to be on the lookout for? Help us understand the landlord's perspective on this. Yeah, so uh, thank you. Appreciate the, the question, Linda. And um, I think just to quote Ari said, he said, every landlord has a sustainability person. And the answer is they do, <laughs> where they might not have a while ago, I could promise you that, you know, every single landlord has a sustainability person because it's becoming uh, a, a very popular topic and it's getting moved up in the process. So, um, you know, so, I, I, you know, yes, like a series of questions. So um, I will tell you that, number one, you know, landlords know that how real this is and how important this is to tenants. And it's kind of funny. So I come in every morning and I get on my CBRE computer and there's always like some kind of message at the bottom. And lately the message has been carbon neutral buy and every company I think has the carbon neutral buy and then you fill in your blank date. And I think that's really, really important because what that's telling you is that every tenant who's showing up in a building is now making a commitment to be carbon neutral buy and you can pick your date. So as a landlord, that tenant's coming to you with their carbon neutral promise on what that date is. And, you know, the idea from a, from a landlord perspective is to kind of, you know, it, it's nice to know what that tenant is expecting because we want to kind of meet those needs. And, and I think every company is going to be doing that. I, I don't remember our date, but I think it's 30 something ish that comes in my screen every day. Um, so we want to kind of, as a tenant, you know, we want to actually understand, you know, when you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to accomplish and, and, and figure out a way to do that. Um, so, you know, the issue for landlords is, uh, you know, landlords want to help tenants achieve their goals with a building and they'll move to a building that achieves those goals. And so we are exploring, you know, lots of different ways to change out buildings and systems to help tenants achieve those carbon neutral goals. And it's become, you know, a very big part of it. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, what does it mean in terms of my tenant build out and my tenant air distribution? And, you know, that has now become all a part of a building review process. So we have been taking a look. So, you know, what happens is we do a term sheet, 
And then Ari said, you got to get it earlier. And then the rules and regs come somewhere in like the first or second draft of the lease. You get the copies of the rules and regs. Uh, I would suggest everyone, see, I got some head shakers. Uh, I would suggest everyone to ask for rules and regs earlier because that's where this gets effectuated. It's not, you know, we can talk about, you know, how we share responsibility. And there has to be some kind of sharing responsibility as it relates to local law because not every tenant uses their space the same. Not every tenant will have the same carbon neutrality goals as other tenants will. So the ones that are have a, a higher standard and want to reach a standard and going to use a less consumption should not pay as much as a tenant that has lower standards. So I think we kind of weave that into what we're doing. And so you're achieving a level of standard that kind of works with what we're trying to do as landlords. Okay, that's really helpful. It makes sense. I saw Ari and Molly that you were nodding in agreement. If you wanted to add anything to that, feel free to speak up. Sure, I'll add a couple thoughts there. Uh, you know, I really agree with with, with both uh, Peter and Ari here and what they mentioned um, when they were answering your questions, Linda. I think that collaboration is going to be of the utmost importance, right? And leasing is certainly one avenue in which I've seen landlords start to sort of work out ways that hopefully are going to be equitable for sharing that responsibility between tenants and landlords. Um, but more and more, I, I just think that relationship and open line of communication, right, getting access to rules and regulations earlier in the process, um, obviously involving the brokerage community more uh, and, and making sure that they're up to speed on the latest things so that they can share that information with the people that they're representing. These are all critical components, I think, of a successful landlord-tenant relationship moving forward. And the more that both parties recognize what's coming, which is, you know, Local Law 97, that's probably just the beginning, right? We can anticipate more and more in this realm of energy and carbon policy because New York is really on the leading edge. It's got the most stringent carbon requirements out there right now, and others are watching right across the nation. And so this is a key issue, and I'm excited to hear more from the perspectives of the other folks on the panel here and to offer mine as well on what we're seeing on the infrastructure side um, as it relates to both landlord and, and tenant uh, preparations, I guess we'll call them, for Local Law 97 and other laws. Excellent. Sounds like that and communication just, is key. Go ahead, Ari. I just try to be very brief and want to make sure there's plenty of time for others. Um, you know, local law 97, as most people know, is not the first local law on this topic, right? So it started with 84, then you have 87, 88. I think as Peter talked about, um, you know, kind of wanting access to information and, you know, I forget if it's 87 or 88 that requires, uh, you know, metering and then uh, for tenants above uh, 5,000, 10,000 feet, um, to be provided with uh, data that says, here's your consumption. It doesn't require you to necessarily bill for that, right? And that was something that I think Redney uh, kind of got uh, taken out uh, of those bills a, a number of years ago. But you can obviously imagine once the information is there, you're going to have the lower consuming tenant saying, hey, why am I paying, you know, for the, uh, you know, for the hog upstairs, right? So that will all play out. And so that is going to continue to affect the relationship to, you know, landlord, tenant, information, um, and just looking at all the ways in which, you know, once people are actually looking at this stuff, um, when you see both the costs for the consumption and then the costs for potential penalties, uh, you know, you're going to have, a, a, I think, the cream will rise to the top 
as far as all the best practices that need to get uh, you know much more further deployed. Yeah, that's perfect. Very helpful. I think um, right in that vein, I'd love to turn to you now, Bruce, and uh, really try to think about hearing from the tenant perspective, I guess, in all of this, the one group that um, really needs to live inside of the space long term after we get through all of these negotiations is the end users. And I know um, at WPP, you do a lot of work, you know, you're a large ambitious tenant in the New York market, but you do a lot of work to get feedback from your people and see what you're hearing. And so I'd love to get your take on this. Um, also, can you maybe talk a little bit about, um, uh, Peter mentioned these announcements that come out quite frequently from the C-suite around these net zero targets and these goals. And um, sometimes there's this perception that there might be a slight disconnect between those C-suites and the people on the ground who actually need to get this implemented and figure out what those investments look like. So I'd love to hear your perspective on, on those things. Yeah, so so um, so yes, we have, a, you know, sustainability is very, very important to our company and, 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 and being, you know, being, so, you know, on the cutting edge of it and, and uh, um, is, is both important to our clients, our customers and our people. And so we have announced, we have announced that we are going to be um, net zero on scope one and two by 2025 and net zero on, on scope three by 2030. So I think we're, we're, we're actually very aggressively in that. Um, it's funny you said, you know, the C-suite, the district of C-suite, if anything, our, our, our company's been running very fast ahead on this. I, I you know, without even telling me that I, I found out that, you know, we are, we're, we're technically net zero, in, or not net zero, we, we, we purchased um, energy, uh, energy investment credits, uh, renewable energy investment credits for our entire American portfolio starting in 2019. So I, I saw this that we were 100% you know renewable in, in the states. I wasn't sure about it. Our goal is though is to replace all those inve the investment credits with actual renewable sources. So we, so we have but we have offset our entire U.S. portfolio. I think our entire U.K. and our entire Canada portfolio as far as as far as um, offset. But 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 our real strategy is to get our energy from renewable sources, eliminate the need for renewable, you know, lower our energy footprint. Um, we are we're, we're we are uh, looking at sustainable in all our in all our supply chains or all our, our all our uh, practice areas in, in 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 corporate real estate in both you know how our how our brokers conduct their business we've incorporated into our RFPs um, we are we look at now when we're looking at buildings we're looking at both you know the not just the lead and well aspects but also the carbon footprint of the building and, and the carbon footprint of developing a new building you know the carbon you know, carbon smart materials, and 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 quite frankly, I think we're examining how we view building types because you know, uh, reusing a building is much smarter from a carbon footprint point of view than necessarily a new building. Although at the same time, you have to, we still have to have buildings that are fit for purpose. We have to find more creative ways to do that. Um, we are working with our landlords. Um, we just did. We just started. We're developing. We're, we're anchoring and co-developing a building with, uh, with Brookfield down in uh, South America, where um, we hired we we hired a cutting edge architect, several sustainable um, uh, uh, systems built in the building, wastewater you know wastewater reuse um, a facade that 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 flexible facade that changes the way it treats the light, um, you know uh, uh, energy uh, a green roof. Solar systems, so it's really, it's really important to us, and and um, we're embedding in every in every part in every part of our process, and and, and the life cycle of the building, and how both we have, 
we we now bring to uh, like I said we have we have lead criteria not lead uh, sustainable criteria in our, in our RFPs, and we bring uh, sustainable consultants uh, to our um, to our FM discussions to our construction discussions. Um, so we're, we're we're embedding sustainable expertise in every in every in every uh, uh, piece of our value chain, at least in the yeah. Level. It's really, um, it's while well, you you guys are doing a lot, you're kind of far uh, along on your journey. It sounds like, but I'm sure you still have a ways to go because your your target is quite aggressive. 2025, yeah. boy, that's around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of work to do for you. We're, we're slightly <laughs> behind you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was, uh, I'm hearing this theme though about communication. It's really interesting to hear that from the developer's perspective, how you're co-developing that with Brookfield and um, the kind of discussions that you're going. But I think it also reverberates Ari's earlier point around bringing your sustainability experts to the table very early can really give you, it sounds like a, a nice leg up. Um, so that's, that's very helpful. I'm gonna come back to you though, Bruce, to stay at the ready, but I wanna turn now to Molly. Um, and and uh, so Molly is with JBNB, as you heard, and so maybe it's a good time to get a little technical here. Um, and so I'd like to talk about a couple of things, but you've heard how the other questions have gone. Touch on what you can or what makes the most sense for you. But in terms of building technologies that you're seeing that are starting to come into play and really that are starting to evolve because you've been in this space most of your career, um, what's out there? What's emerging? Um, and also, can you can you do it with the lens thinking about if it's more focused on lead and climate consciousness, or is it more focused on health and well-being uh, in terms of the technologies you're seeing in the in the buildings, uh, or both? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll do it sort of time dependent because we've seen a shift in what people are looking at in terms of technology, you know, with the times. So when Local Law 97 and the Climate Mobilization Act first hit the streets in New York, there was a lot of focus um, from both landlords and tenants on what kinds of technology were gonna help them reduce their energy and their carbon. Um, and that was hot and heavy, right, for about a year. Um, at which point, uh, of course, we all started to deal with the unfortunate effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and the industry focus, I would say across the board, really shifted away from energy and carbon momentarily and towards health and wellness, right? You remember those early days, things were scary and people were trying to figure out how to make indoor environments as safe as they could possibly be. And so at that point, we started to see that, that shift into indoor air quality monitoring, indoor air quality tracking, um, methodologies to increase outdoor air, technologies like ultraviolet, filtration, right? Nowadays, you go into an office, you're in a conference room, and chances are you're going to see a little portable filtration unit in there, right? A lot of that technology started to gain traction and interest on a wide scale at, at that point in time. And now I think we're at the point where we're starting to come out of the pandemic and people are realizing that the policy landscape hasn't really changed much as it relates to energy and carbon. And so there needs to be a balance between these two things. And that's where we are today, trying to figure out how we balance health and wellness, indoor air quality, transparency, communication about the safety or sort of healthiness of an indoor environment with the inevitable impacts to energy and carbon. And there are impacts there. Um, you know, I, in fact, I think I have some data that I can share sort of er in the early days uh, when ASHRAE was coming out with its early recommendations for safe indoor environments. They had guidance around things like increasing outdoor air significantly, right? Operating systems 24-7. Those types of operations, while they do certainly produce, you know, a, a higher rate of dilution, which in theory would move harmful particles out of spaces more quickly, um, they come with an energy and carbon impact and a cost impact at the at the you know expense of the landlord as well. 
And so, you know, over time we've shifted more to, okay, what are the technologies that we can deploy that are going to improve indoor air quality, that are going to make people feel comfortable and safe indoors, but aren't necessarily going to result in a, you know, a 10 or a 14% increase annually in energy consumption, because that's got impacts for local law 97 and array of other, you know, local laws and things that, that landlords and tenants are having to deal with. It's a, a lot of information, but this is just to say that there's a way to actually optimize for both of these things. You know, I think on the energy and carbon side, you know, landlords are looking holistically at building type upgrades that will eventually impact tenants, of course, considering, you know, how we're going to finance that kind of stuff. And then tenants, right, are looking at things that they can do in their spaces to drive down energy consumption as well. Um, and sort of parallel path, they're looking at indoor air quality improvements that, that can provide that level of safety. So I'm happy to go into to more specifics, but I'll leave it there for a minute since that was a lot of, of content to share. No, I think that's great. And I think some more may come out during the, uh, the Q&A session as well. We'll see um, what it is that the audience is mostly interested in, and that can guide us a little bit too. I, um, I, I know, uh, so Thomas asked if, um, if we could talk about as well what are some of the current trends that are happening abroad, not just in New York and in the USA? And, um, and so I'll interject that here a little bit. I have a few more questions for the panelists, but um, there was a very similar Cornet sustainability panel hosted recently, one in, uh, in Asia, I believe, hosted out of Malaysia, and then one in the UK, and they both happened to have been moderated by my colleagues in each of those respective uh, markets. So I did get a few notes just to hear, what is it that people are talking about? Um, and dealing with abroad. And I was able to sort of boil it down to, to five interesting key points. I'll mention them here. It may sort of help to guide our discussion a little bit too. So um, one of the things that uh, is happening, particularly in the Asia market, this, a number of companies have um, both started to tie ESG, uh, these goals, sustainability goals, to compensation of their employees. And we haven't seen that start to happen yet a lot stateside, but um, it seems like something that's gaining some popularity as well. There's the SBTI, which stands for the Science-Based Targets Initiative, and they have um, what they call a sectoral decarbonization approach. It's very popular in the Asian markets. And this, um, this implements the concept of carbon pricing, almost like a tax on your different business units and employees that we're starting to see some companies roll out. Um, and there's a lot of information around, um, you know, how do you come up with the cost of carbon for your company and what are you pushing down to your business units? This is gonna lead to a question I'm gonna ask Bruce about end users and if they really care about these topics or how we get them to care about these topics. Um, the third thing that was interesting from abroad is uh, the role of banks and financial institutions. Now, this kind of goes to the question I asked Ari earlier around what are investors doing? Because it's believed that banks have a huge ability to influence non-banking industries. And that's by way of how they're lending money, what the projects are doing, and investors too, in terms of how they're investing money. And so um, in some ways in the Asian countries, the banks um, and, and they call them funding houses, we might call them equity houses here, are really thinking about um, how they can provide highly favorable terms to, to, to projects that have you know, sustainability elements in them. Uh, and then quickly, the fourth and fifth things are sort of along the same line. This will come to a question I'm gonna ask Ari as well, but there's a big feeling that there's a lack of quality reporting. Um, it's unclear how to measure uh, fairly and truthfully and what are the standards around accounting. And then finally, 
um, one of the big themes in those two sessions was around that there's just too many solutions. It causes confusions. There's sometimes a lack of a clear path forward. Um, so those were some of the trends coming out of some of the international markets. And so I wanted to interject that, but I do want to turn back to Bruce and Ari. First, I'm going to come to you, Ari. Um, you talked a little bit about reporting. Um, I know you've been involved with some of the measuring standards and the accounting um, of carbon. Can you talk to us about what's happening in that space? You've been around it for a long time. How's it evolving? What are you seeing and what should we be aware of? Yeah, um, well, I think you hit on a lot of uh, important topics there. Um, you know, with respect to reporting, you know, there's a lot of these ESG reporting frameworks, which, um, you know, whether you're a, a public company having to deal with a lot of the ratings and rankings, or maybe a private company that might have been using something like uh, Gresby, the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. Yeah, I think for a long time, maybe I guess for the last decade, um, there's been a lot of emphasis um, stemming from investor interest on what's your score, what's your score, is it an A, is it a B, congratulations. I think now it's coming right, it's coming back around to uh, carbon, uh, to energy costs, and to real kind of business issues that can never be measured by an A or a B or uh, whatever it is. Um, so with that in mind, uh, I think there's a lot of convergence around the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, whether you're a public company, private company, um, look at the at the real estate uh, sector map. Um, there, there's a lot there to focus on. And then from an ESG perspective, um, if you look at what uh, in Europe, uh, both EPRA and INREV have almost identical sustainability uh, reporting best practice uh, guidelines. Um, I think those are probably coming uh, stateside as well. Um, both I know NARIT and NACREF are looking at those kinds of standards, but um, there's no surprises there. Uh, and so at the end of the day, uh, it's about performance um, and, you know, not just scope one and two performance, but scope three performance, whole building. Uh, it, in, it, increasingly rare are the instances where a landlord can kind of get away with saying, oh, it's triple net or, oh, it's not my responsibility. Um, uh, I think uh, various pressures, including the law in the case of New York City, are, uh, are making it your business to, to pay attention. So I could talk about all the other topics you uh, covered as well, but I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, that's good. We'll see what comes out in the Q&A too. And um, I have a couple of questions we're gonna throw at you uh, uh, next, Peter and Molly. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you, Bruce, um, in terms of the, the, the end end users and all of this, the people who sit in and live in and occupy the space, I'm just trying to get a gauge for the audience here. Um, you know, do, do the actual occupants who are non-real estate professionals, non-engineers, non-brokers, do they care about all of this? And I mean, if not, like, how are you getting them to care? What do they say? Is it in their feedback? I would say very much so. In our, in our company, it's very much so. And you, and you talk about, you know, compensation. Yes, you know, our social responsibility, sustainability is part of our, of how we're looked at. Um, even in our, our company, our company uh, mission statement has incorporated this. We are a creative transformation company. We use our power of creativity to build futures for our people, cl planet, clients, and communities. I mean, so it's really, and we, and we all have a piece of that. It's, it's, it's you know, we're, we're on, the, we're on the, uh, the community and the planet part. We're, we're trying to uh, lower our carbon footprint in everything we do in building. Um, but just the, the, the uh, ESG initiatives and the diversity initiatives, you know, when we, we did our De Detroit project recently, we, we, 
We went back down to downtown Detroit. We went to an old building, but also going back to Detroit was also an opportunity to, to create all sorts of incubator projects with to, to reach out to the community, to create internship programs for people in the city. And so it's really, it, it is, it's an all part of our business. And it's really, it's part of our, it helps us to, to attract creative people. Um, and it's really, um, it, it really is, yeah, I'm really proud to work for a company. It's really, it's really embedded in all factors, of, in, in, all, in all parts of our, of our operations. And, and everyone's judged on it. And it's really part of who we are in order to become a better company. And just, it, it's, it's kind of exciting. Yeah, and, that makes sense. That's what I'm seeing too. Yeah. So, so, we, we, so yes, we get support for what we do in these areas. And, 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 um, and again, you know, we're going through a large process right now, building about a dozen more campuses across the country. Um, campus buildings where we, where we consolidate a lot of our real estate in, in each city, um, create kind of a world-class world, a world working environment. But we're looking very hard. You know, each one of those campuses is going to have a, a sustainability scorecard and part of sustainability. And, it's, and, and you know, the, the, the carbon manufacturer producing is going to be the way we judge, you know, way we judge some of these pro those projects. And, and, yeah. and, and the current footprint going forward. So it's very much, very much embedded in our company, very much embedded in how we're judged and, and, and the company certainly supports it. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, it's really good to hear. That's what I'm seeing too, across a lot of the, uh, the companies and clients that we're dealing with. I, um, I'll share the name of this firm because they've been very public about this BlackRock. Uh, their CEO authored uh, an open letter. And so he was very open about these topics, but they did something really cool that I hadn't seen a lot of companies do. And they created an app that gets pushed to every single employee in their phone. And they're actually responsible for tracking their individual carbon footprints. So if they decided to take mass transit to work or to drive, this is, and, and they've gamified it so that it becomes a game and it's a competition and people love it. Um, so I've seen some really interesting and creative things around getting the everyday users, the non-real estate folks engaged in this topic. Anything from anyone to add? Otherwise, I'm going to ask a, um, a last question here before we open it up for Q&A to uh, Molly and Peter. Um, I wanted to see if you two could talk about um, the age of the building stocks in New York City. And what about if you're a tenant who's not going into a class A building and you're gonna go into a class B building or you're, you're dealing with older stock? What kinds of things, I'll ask you first, Molly, are you, how do you handle it differently from an engineering perspective in an older building as opposed to a brand new building? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's an important point to, to sort of reiterate and, and make again that, um, you know, these are complicated issues and solving them is challenging, you know, even for the most sophisticated buildings, tenants, building owners, engineers, right? We really are on the cutting edge of the industry and in figuring out decarbonization of buildings. And so it's important not to forget that there are uh, quite a number of buildings, majority of them, in fact, that don't fall into that category and um, are going to be looking for resources and support as they figure out what their part is in this whole story. And so, you know, the question, how do you approach it differently? You know, I think in, and again, those kind of class A commercial sophisticated buildings, you're probably dealing with a high level of control in terms of a building management system. You know, probably the systems within those, those buildings are probably a little more recent, a little more energy efficient. Maybe the teams that developed those systems, designed them and implemented them, had at their disposal more tools to support the idea of energy efficiency and decarb. Uh, but when you start getting into these older buildings, maybe the best approach is to really start from basics, 
and go back to sort of the traditional energy efficiency items first, right? That's always the first step, I think, for any building, even the class A commercial, right? Never hurts to make sure that you're, you're checking those energy efficiency boxes before you move on to the more technical and more cutting edge solutions like energy recovery, electrification. These are key words that are becoming more and more commonplace, you know, in those more kind of far along uh, real estate industries, but for class B and, and, and people who just don't have access just yet to the same resources, hitting that energy efficiency and then education, I think is another big piece, right? Making sure that um, folks are aware of, of what's going on and how they can contribute, whether that's on a large scale or a small scale is going to be really impactful because again, I can't speak to exact percentages. Maybe Peter knows um, where I don't, but the percentage breakout, right, of, of large class A commercial versus class B and other types of real estate in New York, you know, I just, I have to imagine it's, it's pretty skewed towards, uh, towards those, those yeah. other buildings. I can tell you that the average, and this is tough for New York, right, the average age of a building in New York is 68 and a half years old, right? So, that's pretty old technology, right? If we had cars that were 68 and a half years old, we'd be like, we're not using these cars anymore. Um, so New York stock is old. And, and I know a lot of the solutions we talk about are new buildings and new buildings are a great place to start. But in New York, where we have this, you know, 68 year old average building, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a much different place. In different, and also a lot of these buildings are, you know, what we'll call over FAR, right? So it's one thing to say, okay, we can just tear down everything and build new buildings, but people don't really do that um, when a building is bigger than what you can replace it with. So I think, you know, where I think Molly's right, where you start is really, really important. And then in New York, we have this kind of unique thing where all the systems are different. There's not the homogenous buildings in New York where everything's done the same way. We have building central plants, we have package units, we have air, we have all kinds of different systems. And I think there's, and you know, I think the beginning said that there are too many, you know, are there too, are there too many solutions? And I would probably say there aren't enough solutions. I, I'm the opposite of whatever that last panelist said, too many solutions. Uh, because of the complexity and the type of buildings that we have, it's not the same solution for every building. It's not, you know, there's, a, there's an age equality and the type of systems that they have now and how do you retrofit. And then again, you know, while some buildings it's great that there's an anchor tenant and the building rolls at one time and you get a complete vacant building. And I have a few vacant buildings like that where we start from a scratch and we could say, okay, blank canvas. It's like new construction, right? You start from dirt, blank canvas. We can do whatever we want. And existing buildings, sometimes you get you know, empty building, but for the most part, we don't have that in New York, right? We have buildings that have role and you can't just do the blank slate. We can rip everything out and put everything in. There are tenants and occupants in those buildings. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of more solutions than less solutions so that you could find an optimal solution. You know, more, more choice, I think in this case is better. I hear just, you. Um, yeah, go ahead, Ari, on please. The spirit of solutions there. I think, uh, you know, new or old building, one thing that uh, I never saw enough of uh, was really looking at vampire load. So for those that don't know what that is, that's the stuff that's using energy when it's plugged in, maybe it's off or your computer's in standby mode. And um, some, some data from, from peers of large landlords, uh, you know, shared amongst friends over a Zoom beer uh, would talk about just, you know, how 
energy consumption in offices during COVID did not plummet nearly to the modeled figures. And you have to ask yourself why that is. And so going forward, there's going to continue to be this dynamic working environment with lots of, you know, empty office chairs for, for unfortunately a long time to come here. Right. And so thinking about how you really assess what that vampire load is and smart plug load systems, these are somewhat required by new code, but not to the extent uh, that it could be. And these systems have very, very strong ROIs. So it would encourage uh, uh, you know, occupiers to be looking at that very closely. And uh, if, if your landlord ultimately pays the bill and you're getting it divided up across the whole building, um, push your landlord and maybe talk to some other tenants in the building to get, to get some, some action there. There's, there's savings literally lying on the ground for you. Wow. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> Make sure sustainability is with you in those lease negotiations. I um, Very helpful. Um, I want to invite the audience to now to uh, ask questions. If you have anything for this uh, fantastic panel of experts, you can put it right in the chat. I believe Thomas told me it's how we're going to manage that. So I'll keep an eye out and see if anything comes through. In the meantime, um, unless there's any particular topic you all would like to cover, I can continue on with another question. I was going to throw this one at, at you, Peter. While we're waiting for some questions to tee up. So um, in that vein of talking about, I'm glad you, you talked about the average age of New York. I had read somewhere that uh, of the stock in New York that um, nearly 70% of all of the stock was at least 70 years old. So it's perfectly aligned with kind of what you said. Um, so one last question on that topic. When you when you are uh, representing those landlords and you're dealing with the, the tenants on the tenant side of that negotiation, what kinds of things do the tenants need to be um, particularly asking for or thinking about when they're, are there anything specific that top three items that come up for you? Um, again, some of these are more towards carbon and some are more towards like sustainability. So I, I would say the the biggest question we have, you know, there's, look, there's a there's a whole big, you know, right, there's, there's another side of the other than carbon in '97 is the whole like recyclable side of it, right, which has become a big popular one. I think is 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 an important one that people talk about on the electric side, you know, just how much, you know, I, I think someone mentioned it before, like we we had this the initial law which was meter everything, right, but still, you know how many meters and what they meter and how they meter, you know, you can kind of do things in a larger scale and a smaller scale. And I'm getting a lot of, you know, you know, how things are metered and, and, you know, if you have, you know, on floor, things that are on floors and things that are outside of floors, like the metering, I think is, is really, really important to people. And then the last thing um, is that I see is, you know, and we kind of talked about it as a tough topic is what's the sharing you know, aspect of it. Uh, you know, obviously there are things that are strictly tenant. There are things that are strictly landlord. And then there's a lot of things that are the kind of in-between stuff, which some of it is used by and, 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 and occupied by the tenant and some of which is, you know, used for and occupied by the landlord and how that sharing works. And I think, um, you know, I will tell you from a, a landlord perspective, it, it's, there's a lot of fairness that, you know, we're, we're trying to achieve and it's hard because of how these things get used. So again, you know, a tenant's easy one, right? Whatever they, they plug into, that's easy. And a landlord one is, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cooling the lobby or I'm lighting certain areas. Like, okay, got a central plant, got it. And then there's all the in-between stuff I think is really, really difficult. So those are the, those are the kind of the three biggest ones that I'm talking about all okay. the time. That's helpful. Very helpful. Um, so you kind of touched on the first question that came up, which was how should landlords allocate out the penalties to tenants? Um, anything that any of the other panelists would add to that part of the discussion? Yeah, I'd like to add a couple of thoughts on that. Um, one thing that that I'm pushing for, and I know a lot of folks are pushing for, is some sort of standard, right? An industry standard, um, whether that's developed by you know an entity like the Department of Buildings as part of the rulemaking process for Local on 97 versus sort of an industry-focused research entity like the Institute of Market Transformation. I feel that somebody needs to come out with a standard that everybody can reference um, and set, so that there can be consistency across the industry. The question of how should you do it is a very difficult question, specifically for the reasons that Peter mentioned, right? There are shared systems um, that aren't necessarily easy to sort of parse out in, in landlord-tenant buildings. Uh, the other question is what metric do you measure on, right? Do you do it on carbon in every case or do you do something like an energy use intensity type of system? So there are a lot of questions and a lot of different ways that you can approach this. And I can tell you from my own personal research, running a, a couple of different scenarios on how to parse out these penalties, depending on how you do it, it can really move the needle. I've seen people do it based on square footage alone, right? Pro rata share based on square footage. That one's tough. If you have a high energy intensity user in your building, that takes up a small footprint, right? So that one doesn't work so well. I've seen other lease clauses right now that are toying around with the idea of looking at the tenant's electrical consumption only, right? That's a great first step, but in my view, um, you're missing out on the shared heating and cooling system energy that in theory tenants should take some part in, right? The question is how much? Different buildings have different levels of metering, right? If everybody metered everything, that would make it easy, right? But we know that that's likely not gonna be the case. And so, you know, I, I've got thoughts and other industry professionals have thoughts on how to address those shared energy sources. But I think the best thing for everybody is if there was something we could reference, right? Something that we could reference and say, listen, the industry has accepted this as the standard. Here's how you would go about it. And there would be consistency so that, you know, you can't have one building looking at another saying, hey, they did it differently than we do. And, and I as a tenant am not getting a fair shake because they're doing it differently over there. So, you know, that's that's my my two cents on that. Yeah. All right. And two things I'd just add quickly. Um, I think another, uh, you know, denominator in the calculations is also how many people are in the building. So a lot of these class A buildings are the ones that, you know, some of the reasons why they may use more energy than older buildings, a little counterintuitive, is because that's where people are being jam-packed in, you know, like sardines, maybe not so much uh, during COVID, but that was kind of, you know, a lot of controversy around uh, a certain lead platinum tower. Uh, but, you know, it had a huge amount of energy intensive things going on. So you can't really, uh, you know, penalize that tower. And the owners of that tower are certainly uh, working to, you know, kind of communicate that to the rulemaking committee, as are plenty of other New York City landlords who have a lot of buildings like that. Um, and then um, the, the, the other thing um, is... You know, you, you have to step back and say, at the end of the day, um, this this is about you know, driving energy performance again through the whole through the whole life cycle. Um, and, and so, when you want to sit and talk about you know, leases and things like that, um, right now, uh, I think on the occupier side, as this audience is, 
I know uh, from, from my past life, there were starting to be uh, attempts uh, by, 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 by folk, a lot of folks like on the call today to try and get it uh, sort of enumerated as to how the penalties would be, you know, assessed in the future. Um, so, you know, landlords are getting smart about that. I think they're pushing back on certain things that they don't want to sort of like commit to these kinds of penalties. Um, not just not really because they're trying to pass the buck. I think it's for a lot of the issues that, that Molly raises. Uh, so, uh, you know, TBD on a lot of that stuff, certainly understandable to try. If you're a tenant who thinks you're going to have a very efficient uh, footprint, uh, go ahead and try to maybe, uh, you know, get those penalties to be uh, you know, enumerated as to you know, they'll go somewhere else. Um, but I, I think you'll find a, a, some, some well-defined uh, counterpoints as to, you know, why that, that kind of language maybe doesn't make sense to, you know, uh, accept in a lease right now. Peter's probably seeing that stuff playing out, you know, in the, in the weeds right now as well, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. I, I, I am. I, I just, and, and, and maybe I could just talk about this and, and it's kind of sparked something in my mind, this conversation. And I think it's important and, and maybe, maybe Bruce will comment on it or not. But I also think that, you know, and I, and I'm saying this for example, cause Ari mentioned like I have a building that we don't have one of the best ratings on the building. And that's because I have a tenant in the building who is a huge consumer of electric, big trading firm. And we have the big ugly letter, not the worst letter, but not a, a letter I would accept from my son's school. I'd be very unhappy uh, if he came back with it. Uh, but we have this letter outside the building. And I, and I think what's interesting and a part of the equation, and maybe this is where Bruce, you come in, is that you know, we talk about tenants renewing in space and, you know, your lease is coming up and they, they kind of, as you know, I know about this, that my tenants look at it and they say, run an economic model. What's it for me to stay and what's it for me to go? But if you're a user who's going to renew for 10 years and you know you're going to be hitting that next milestone as it relates to this and, you know, the, the way your space is built and the way it functions, if you can move to another building and change it so that you'd be paying less of the penalty, I think has to be now part of this equation where that was never part of the equation. It was like rent, rent, space, space, operating and taxes, and you kind of, you know, you do your, you know, construction. But now this is like a new line item going to be in runs because if in 25 my lease comes up and I renew for 10 years, what's going to happen to me in 30 if I stay and do nothing versus, we always call the do nothing scenario versus the move scenario. So I don't know. You know, I think that should be a really big, you know, part of tenants. I don't know a tenant guy, but I would think that'd be a big part of a tenant valuation. Uh, and I was going to add, though, what do you get any credit for not doing anything in the process? So it's like, you know, as, as we know, a move in itself consumes a lot. A move, a move in conversion spends a lot of carbon. Um, and they say you can't, sometimes you can't build back the carbon it takes to, to build a more efficient office building. It's, it's just, it's, it's so... How, what are we what are we gonna get credit for? So it's it's interesting. Yeah. So it's definitely, it's definitely, definitely gonna be part, it's definitely gonna be part of the of the search. And and we have we do have some big numbers coming up actually <laughs> in 25 to 30. <laughs> that no, yeah, makes perfect sense. I um a couple of other thank you all for that. That's super helpful. A couple other questions that came through in the chat. Um, so I'll touch on a couple of them quickly, but in terms of uh you touched on this earlier. 
Molly, when we were talking about building technologies, really thinking about that push and pull between, you know, lead and climate sustainability versus health and well-being. And so getting more air flush through the space sometimes is detrimental to what you're trying to do from an efficiency perspective. So um, there's a question here around how those two play together or against one another. And um, if you see that playing up, I guess, Peter and Lisa's or, or Ari as well. I was just going to, uh, uh, we uh, just looking at our, our report. We had to we had to delay our, our single use plastics thing for a year. So so we we had committed to ending single use plastics use in our buildings by the end of 2020. And one thing you know was that obviously weren't even in our buildings. But two is again it plays into the whole PPE issue and 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 you know and sanitization issue and and um, so we had, we delayed it. We delayed to the end of 21. I wouldn't be surprised if we had delayed further until we really figure out how how to, how sustainability is going to interact with some of these plastics. I mean, see, I mean, I'm not for the COVID interact with, um, mm -hmm. yeah. with that. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, so um, I'll caveat this by saying I'm not an engineer and I'm glad Molly's here. But, um, you know, from, from experience, I think that if you're focusing on both energy efficiency and overall healthy building environments, the trade-off is not maybe as significant as one expects. Buildings that are well run, well maintained, and are you know you have your HVAC systems, HVAC systems finely tuned. You're looking at controls. You're looking at performance um, around a, a range of metrics from energy to water to IAQ. Um, you're going to have a lot of optimization opportunities between the two. Um, from the certification perspective, um, I know someone mentioned uh, well before they maybe had a little bit of a head start in the healthy building certification game, but I would put uh, the FitWell certification um, on everyone's radar as well, uh, a lot more cost effective um, and uh, fewer prerequisites that I think, you know, if we're talking about trying to be for, for the 100% of the building stock, a lot of really straightforward things that can be uh, implemented and you can have a third-party validation for a relatively small fee. Um, you know, people like Bruce can put that up in their office, uh, show to their employees that they're taking the best care of them from a health and safety perspective. And that's going to drive, you know, all kinds of positive outcomes um, for those that are responsible for uh, attracting and retaining the talent. Um, so, Molly, I, you know, you probably have 15 examples of how energy efficiency and IAQ um, play together um, and uh, maybe not as much time to, to cover those. But I would say um, the two actually uh, I, can and should be complementary, particularly as you step outside of New York and recognize that there are increasingly compelling opportunities to be buying um, clean power so that if you happen to be jacking up, uh, you know, your energy consumption a bit, that shouldn't automatically mean um, an increase in your carbon footprint. Yeah, I think if we can maybe get like 30 seconds on that, Molly, and then I'm going to try to squeeze in one last question that is on here. Yeah, I think that was really well said. I mean, these two things can be complementary, and I would just encourage everybody to um, sort of approach the problem in a, in a sort of a structured data-driven way, right? Have somebody out, see what's possible and feasible in your space, um, have a conversation with your landlord, and then come up with a solution that actually does, in fact, kind of put those things together instead of pitting them against each other. And some of those strategies, just to rattle them off quickly, right, increased filtration, is a really great strategy that comes at a lower cost, right, for, from an energy perspective and from a dollars perspective versus simply bringing in a ton of outdoor air way far above and beyond what you might need. But, you know, if, if outdoor air is really critical and there are benefits that have been proven, right, in terms of cognition and productivity, um, 
then maybe you utilize a domain control ventilation type strategy where you're sending that ventilation to exactly where you need it, when you need it, and then you know stepping back on it when folks aren't there. Those are those are both great strategies that bring together energy efficiency and health and wellness. Um, and I'm you know I'm confident that that we'll figure it out more and more as we go on, right? And this won't yeah. necessarily have to be a trade off at all. Yeah, great practical advice there. And then we're down to just two minutes. I want to throw in this last question. Maybe we'll have a 30 second answer for this one. But um, thinking about these older class B buildings, um, is there a rough rule of thumb for what percentage of the local law 97 compliance is usually achieved by MEP versus actual envelope upgrades? Any this thoughts is on that? Yeah, this is a tough question. I'll give my two cents on it because I've studied a lot of buildings over the course of the last couple of years since 97 came out. And it, it really depends. Every building, there's like a little saying that every building is like a unique snowflake. Literally, it's true, right? It depends on the design, the systems, the quality of construction, the, the quality of the material, how the building is operated. Um, it's very difficult to put a percentage reduction associated with an MEP measure versus a, a facade or envelope measure. It's just something you have to evaluate kind of for your building, um, you know, one by one. That's very helpful. I um, I think we're going to close here. There's a couple of questions we didn't get to, but I'll um, we'll send those around to um, Molly, Ari, Peter, and Bruce and see if there's any uh, inputs and things like ISO 14001 and a couple of other questions. But um, with that, I thank you so much. It's been fascinating getting all of this knowledge from your group of panelists and a really engaged audience here. And uh, with just one minute left, I'm going to hand it back over to you, Thomas, to close us out. There we are. Thank you so much. I don't think there's much more to say after that, honestly. Uh, maybe we have uh, many new questions to ask, but thank you so much for answering all of those and uh, to enlightening us as we continue our efforts to make our buildings both healthier and more efficient. So thank you very much, everyone, and hope you have a lovely rest of your day. Thanks all. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Thank you.